Dr. Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes, Now as they heard these things, he spoke, that is Jesus, another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered them to them, ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And then verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, uh, that he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Jesus is ready to make that ascent up to Jerusalem. You recall over the last couple of weeks that we have seen that he's in Jericho there in the Jordan Valley. There are many that are with him. Mark's gospel declares that there's a great multitude that is following him. He's been in Jericho, which is 1,000 feet below sea level, ready to make that ascent. 20 miles is the distance to Jerusalem from Jericho to 2,500 feet above sea level. It is a steep climb. And here, as Jesus has just left the house of Zacchaeus, our reading starts out with, as verse 11 declares, now when they heard these things, in other words, it is Jesus that declared his mission in the previous verse, in verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That salvation has come to the house of the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. The crowds are excited. The crowds are stirring. They had witnessed Jesus open the eyes of a man who was blind there at the road, his name Bartimaeus, who was begging. And it was Jesus that opened up his eyes. And he, Bartimaeus, as we know, that Luke tells us he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. He is in this multitude. And Luke records that when his eyes were opened up, that the people gave praise to God. And then they saw him converse with Zacchaeus, and he gets saved. And Luke is telling us something now as they're going to make that climb up to Jerusalem, something very important that sets the stage for this parable that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is the parable of the minas. The people are expecting, verse 11, for the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And that would include the disciples that are with him because they have, as we have seen, and will continue to up to the night that Jesus is arrested, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to sit on his left and who's going to sit on his right? And so Jesus is addressing this expectation that the people have of ushering in the kingdom. Now remember in chapter 17 that it was the Pharisees that came skeptically and critically asking Jesus, when is the kingdom of God going to come? In other words, if you're declaring to be the Messiah, if people are saying you're the son of David, where's the kingdom? We want to see something spectacular. We expect you to usher in the kingdom of God now. And here the people are expecting him to do that in a very spectacular way. They're wanting to receive a, a material, a political, a national leader to throw off the yoke of Rome, to restore Israel, to establish his throne as Messiah, ushering in the kingdom. There is an expectation of the Messiah that they want him to be. That is different than the Messiah that he is. You see, he is going to usher in the kingdom when he comes back again. 
But he came first to suffer and to die for sinful humanity. And he's going to resurrect on the third day. You might recall that in the previous chapter that as they were in this area that once again he put uh, aside his disciples and he said to them that I am going to be delivered to the Gentiles. I'm going to be, you know, beaten. I'm going to be despised. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. But I'm, I'm going to rise on the third day. He's been talking about his crucifixion along with his resurrection for the last several months to his disciples. But we also read the disciples understood none of these things. When we get into the triumphal entry next week, everyone's expecting him to usher in the kingdom, including his disciples. No one understands really what is going on. They, they don't get it. And they're expecting him to be the deliverer at the moment. Now, just a little reminder that today people are looking for a deliverer. They are looking for one that will bring political rest and put bread on everyone's table. And to take care of taxes and solve the geopolitical problems of the world. There will be one that will come on the scene that they will receive in the future. He is called the Antichrist. You see, people today are looking for that world leader that will deliver politically, materially, nationally, not realizing that the greatest deliverance needed for any man or any woman is to be delivered from sin. And that's why Jesus came, not to free them from Rome, but to free them from sin. And Jesus is going to come back in great power and glory. He is going to establish his kingdom. We know at that time, then righteousness, as Isaiah declares, will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. But he came the first time to suffer for us that we may be a part of that kingdom because we have forgiveness of sin. He's provided that. We have the hope of heaven. We have relationship with the Father that comes through Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, he's telling a very important parable because they're not understanding that we need to understand as we learn from and consider this morning. Because it deals once again about being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ as we wait for him to return. This parable gives us insight on what our mind should mindset should be and how we should conduct ourselves in this period before the return of Jesus Christ. One of the key phrases in this parable is found in verse 13. Do business till I come, Jesus says in the parable, or the King James reads, occupy till I come. You see, one of the criticisms that people will have for those who are looking for the return of the Lord, and we are to be looking for the return of the Lord, as you know, Back in chapter 12, that Jesus said, you be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. Now, for us to be faithful servants, that means you're serving. But we also are to be watching. We are to be waiting. That is a commandment. It is not a suggestion. And as we are waiting for the Lord, as we are watching for him, as we are occupying till he comes, what happens is, is that it causes us to live for him, to keep our eyes on him. And you see what happens is there are those who like to set dates or things like that. The Lord's going to come at this time. So people will go out and do strange things. They'll sell all their money and give everything away. Or they'll be up on their rooftops with white robes on, waiting for the return of the Lord to come at this time on this particular day. Now, we don't know the hour, the time that the Lord's going to return. We don't know that, but we are to be watching. And Jesus is telling us to occupy, which means to do business. The parable tells us that we are to put what our Lord has given to us to work. 
Now remember that a parable is a story to come alongside. That's what the word para means. It means alongside. It is a spiritual truth to come alongside of a story that they can understand. So here they are, excitement. As they're going up to Jerusalem, they're, they're singing the songs of the ascents that you read from Psalm 120 to 134. There's great expectation that he's going to usher in the kingdom immediately. you got to put yourself in their sandals. They're excited. This is what they've been waiting for. He's going to come, the Lord, and he's going to deal with the Romans, and he's going to usher in the kingdom to where every man's going to sit under his fig tree and eat from his own vineyard. And so he tells this parable. And in this parable here, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom to return. And as we read this story, of course, Jesus, who is the nobleman, a nobleman has the meaning of royalty. Jesus, the only begotten son of God, of noble birth, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And he has taken, he has received the kingdom. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he is coming back as the king of kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the king and he is going to return. And that is an important consideration as we read this parable. Because as the king is coming back and he will call us as his church. Or he's going to come and he's going to receive us to his own, to himself. So the question is, are you, am I, are we as a church, are we occupying till he comes? Till he comes for us. He comes for the church and the rapture of the church. Do we really believe that he is coming back? Do we understand as we go through this parable that there will be an account on how we live now, not going to be judged for our sins? As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've gone over this. In verse 10, Romans chapter 14 declares, as Paul writes, that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema reward seat of Christ in the Greek, and that means that we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sins, because we cannot earn salvation. We have been forgiven because of the work that he did on the cross at Calvary. But we are going to stand at the Bema reward seat, as Paul writes, to be rewarded for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And all of our works in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it is told to us, is going to be tried by fire. And it's going to be tried as to wood, hay, and stubble, the things that are unlike God, not pleasing to God that we've done. Because none of us do this perfectly. And I know that I got wood, hay, and stubble in my own life that will burn away in eternity but also that which is like precious metals, gold and silver, that's going to shine forth, and then we're going to be rewarded. So this is what Jesus is talking about here as we consider this. And as we are going to stand there, we are going to give an account. Did we do business for him in what was given to us in this life? Are we expecting Jesus to return? And if we really believe that he's going to return, how can we be living in sin? How can we be living for ourselves and only desiring to please ourselves? How can we be living for the world and watching pornography and involved in all kinds of carnality and things like that? And it was John the Apostle in his epistle in 1 John chapter 3 that says that we will see him. And when he's revealed, we will see him as he is. And he who has this hope, what hope? Of seeing him. And we're going to see our Lord. 
purifies himself. In other words, if you really believe that the Lord, he could come for me today because tomorrow is unpromised to any of us, but he could come for us as a church. We don't know the day or the hour, but he is going to come. We're going to see him. And as we see him, as we are living in that expectancy, living in eternity's perspective, then know this, it will have a purifying effect on your heart. He purifies himself. You're not going to be living carnally. You're not going to be doing sinful things. You're not going to be, you know, setting your minds on those things that are just sinful and hurtful and, and, and are wicked and wrong. It has a purifying effect on our lives. So in this parable, Jesus, the nobleman, it speaks of our Lord. He left his servants in charge, if you would, and would give ten of his servants a mina, which is a measure of money, as, as we know from verse 15, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading, given the money that was given to them. So it's a measure of money, probably about three months' worth of money, or a hundred denarii, a hundred days' worth of work. And notice that they received in this parable an equal amount. So while the master was away receiving his kingdom, the servants were expected to do business in what was given to them. They could invest the money to earn interest. They could purchase goods and then sell those goods for a profit, knowing that the master, the nobleman, was going to return and the servants then would give an account on how much every man had gained, verse 15. But before that, verse 14, Jesus adds an interesting twist to the story, to the parable here. Again, we read, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Again, the people hearing Jesus tell this story could understand what he was saying there in verse 14, because they would think back probably to a time about 30 years before this time at the birth of Jesus when Herod the Great was ruling at that time, ruling over Judea, a very ruthless man, a very cruel man. He dies and he left Judea to be ruled by his son Archaeus. Archaeus that was in this area, Jericho, where this parable is being told. And Archaeus, what happens after the death of his father, he goes up to Rome. He goes to Caesar Augustus, who's the emperor of Rome. And he uh, wants Caesar Augustus to, to bestow upon him the title of king instead of tetrarch. And the Jews so despised and disliked Archaeus that they sent 50 prominent Jews from Jerusalem to Rome, and they were greeted with 8,000 other Jews who took up their cause and went to the Roman Senate and said, we don't want this man ruling over us to be king, to have the title of king. So Augustus maintained the balance, and he said, he won't have the title of king. He'll just be a tetrarch and rule over that area that would be given to him. So they understood what verse 14 was said and, and understanding the story here, this parable. So the citizens of the country who didn't like the ruler, we don't want him to reign over us. And that's exactly what the crowd would say in a few days from this point in Luke chapter 19, that we will not have this man rule over us, crucify him. And so when the nobleman returns, having received the kingdom, he begins to have his servants give an accounting. He wants to know how faithful and wise they have been and what was given to them. Let's begin to look at that, verse 16. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. 
because you are faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And then the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also uh, be over five cities. And then verse thir- 20, that is, the third one that came along, servant, he came, another, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So we're told that three of the ten servants, as they give an account here to the nobleman, to the master, the first servant took his pound, if you have a King James, or his mina, did business with this master's mina, and he comes back giving a good report. He increased it to ten more minas which is a 1,000% increase. And then the second one, he comes back with a good report. He would uh, report a 500% increase. And, and they would hear from the master the beautiful words, the most incredible words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over very little, have authority over 10 cities, and you're going to have authority over five cities. Now, a couple of things to point out here as we look at this parable. Number one, don't confuse this parable of the minus here in Luke chapter 19 with what Matthew records, the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. They are similar in some ways, but there are also some differences. In the parable of the talents, a talent was also a measure of money. It was worth, I believe, if you look it up, they believe several years' wages. And in that parable, Matthew chapter 25, that Jesus told, uh, let me read it to you, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to one, uh, to another he gave one, to each according to his own ability. And then he would go away to a far country. So it's different in that each servant received a different amount. To one servant, he gave five talents. To one, two. To another, one talent. So uh, to each one's ability. So Bible commentators and, and teachers will tell you that the talent represents gifts and abilities. Being faithful to use our gifts that God gives to us, opportunities to serve. Here in this parable in Luke chapter 19, Everyone gets the same amount. They get one mina. So the mina, most probable, uh, obviously, represents the gospel, represents the word of God. You see, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, but we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So everyone in this room in the coffee shop, listening on live stream, later on on the radio, that is a believer, we have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is it that we are going to do with that gospel that has been entrusted to us? Are we living the gospel? Because the gospel is something that we speak. We know that. It's obvious. But we also live the gospel, don't we? Do people look at your life and my life? And do they see the reality of Jesus Christ? That they see that with our faith that it's being worked out in some way, that we are different, that we belong to heaven. 
And it is Paul that would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that some of us that we plant, are you planting seeds in people's life, the seed of the word of God, the seed of the gospel? Somebody comes along and then waters it, the water of the word. God gets the increase. But Paul also would say to the Corinthians that we are living epistles known and read by all men. Do people really see that you belong to Christ, that you are a Christian? They don't see perfection, but they see that you do belong to him and you believe. And that we are to give and understand that a mina has been given to us to give the truth of God's word in the gospel because there's change in power in the gospel to give to others. And what an incredible opportunity and privilege it is to invest that into somebody's life, to invest in the kingdom of God, to give them the gospel. You know, every week I was, I was speaking of the, the power that's in the gospel, you know, message in the gospel to change men's lives. Every week I get mailings or I get emails about the latest conference you can go to. And I got one this week about come to this conference, spend a lot of money, go to this city with thousands of other pastors. And these big names will come along and they will teach you how to preach with power. Power in preaching is what they say. So you can reach your audience and, you you know, say certain words and act a certain way. Raise your voice in a certain way. And there's power in that. Listen. If they want to do that, do that. But where is the power? The power is in the gospel. The power is in the gospel. And that's why Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God is salvation for all who believe. So we've been entrusted with that. Each one has been given a mina. Secondly, notice that the first two servants said, Master, your mina has earned ten. The second one, five. More minas. This is yours. And they understood they were entrusted to it. Listen, as we talk about Matthew chapter 25 or Luke chapter 19, these two parables, gifts, talents, abilities, the gospel, as Jesus told the parable of the unjust steward back in chapter 16 of Luke, who was wasting the master's good, we learned that every good gift comes from above. And we are to be good stewards and servants of what has been given to us. We're to be good stewards of the, the mysteries of Christ or the truth of God's word given to us, the gospel message. We're to be stewards of, of uh, the gifts and abilities that God has given to us. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 that one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're to be good stewards of our resources, finances. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, that is money, who's going to commit to your trust the true riches? And remember that we as stewards, we're stewards of the things of God. And to me, that's amazing that he would allow us to do that. But he does. But always keep in mind that a steward does not oversee anything of his own. We oversee the things of the master. And how we manage or invest the things of our master entrusted to us in this life has important implications relative to the future and to eternity when he comes back. In the parable of the talents, he said to them, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And it is interesting that Jesus gave this parable right after salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house. He, Zacchaeus, was touched deeply by the Lord. I'll give away half of my goods. He was rich, Luke tells us. And 
He would say, I'll restore fourfold to anyone that I've cheated. And being a chief tax collector, he probably cheated a lot of people. Zacchaeus went out and he showed it practically. And now Jesus is teaching us practical stewardship. The parable of the minus, that we servants are to be faithful until the master returns or he takes us home. And he is going to take us home. He is going to come. And he's going to reward accordingly to our faithfulness. And it appears what we're being told here is that we're going to be rewarded with different levels of authority in his kingdom when the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. I love in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 that Revelation chapter 4, after these things, what things? After chapters 2 and 3, if you've read the book of Revelation, the church things, the letters to the seven churches, the church age, after these things, that a door was opened up in heaven, and I heard the voice of one like a trumpet but saying, come up here, the rapture of the church. And there is that description of the throne of God and all that's taking place around the throne of God in chapter 4 with the four living creatures buzzing around. They do not rest day and night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then there is the 24 elders that are there and they're casting their crowns before the Lord, worshiping him. And then the scene switches in chapter 5 to John. He says, I saw the one who was slain like a lamb, who took the title deed of the earth, that he was worthy to take it. And then there was a great multitude. And in that great multitude, they're singing this new song there before the throne of God. And they are singing, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's the church. It's not the song of Israel. It's not the song of the angels. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. In other words, then we're going to come back with the Lord. When the tribulation period is over, we'll come back with him. And he will establish his kingdom. And we're going to rule and reign with him. Which brings me to the third point as we consider these faithful servants. They are rewarded. And you are going to be over 10 cities. You are going to be over five cities, they are rewarded with more work. You see, heaven isn't going to be boring. And I don't think, and I hope not, that none of you have the Hollywood version in your mind of heaven that we're going to be sitting around, twiddling our thumbs, playing harps, you know, whatever, bored, wishing we could go back. It isn't going to be, it's going to be so glorious and so wonderful. We're going to have dinner with the Lord and with each other. We're going to come back with him. And as we go to be with our Lord, this is reality. That my heart for me and for you is to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things because, again, none of us do this perfectly. We got wood, hay, and stubble, all of us. We fall short. I understand that. It's for me too. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. To hear those words because it's going to be so glorious. Now the third servant here gave an account as we read in verse 20 and 21. He said, I kept your manna in a handkerchief. I feared you because you're an austere man, a hard man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The servant was unfaithful because his heart was not right towards his master. He saw the master as being hard and demanding, and you're not fair. You collect what you didn't deposit. You reap what you didn't sow. You're just not fair to me. 
It really, what he's saying, it, it was mine to do with what I want. But you're being demanding. You're being unfair. And I pray that we would understand that whatever the Lord has given to you is not your own. That it belongs to him. And you've been entrusted with it to be good steward of it. And as you have the right concept and love for the Lord, you're going to see it in that way. A.W. Tozer wrote, Nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy concept of God. And it was right after Paul said, Listen, we're all going to stand at the beam of reward seat of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and give an account what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. He would say, It's the love of Christ that compels me or motivates me. It's important that we have the right concept of our Lord who is gracious and loving and has provided for forgiveness by sending his son to provide that forgiveness so we can be a part of the kingdom. This one missed out. He remained the master servant and in his house, but he was left with nothing. He proved himself unable to manage his master's goods and was given nothing to manage in the future. We read in verse 22, And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and repay what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him. Give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, in verse 26, that to everyone who has been given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. It is a loving Lord that is telling us this morning that we use that which has been given to us, entrusted to us, the opportunities, the gifts, the resources, the gospel, and being wise and faithful servants investing in the kingdom of God. Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, that a, you know, it's required of a steward to be faithful. And then there's another one that's addressed, a group that's addressed, verse 27 but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to re reign over them and slay them before me. These are the ones in verse 14 that hated him and said, we don't want you ruling over us. There will be a judgment. They will be standing at the great white throne judgment Revelation chapter 20 speaks about. Because they've rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of all lords, they will be cast into outer darkness. But as we conclude this morning, listen, the key occupied till I come. Let's not just sit back and get complacent and lazy. But invest and be faithful servants because it has implications for us in the eternal kingdom. There's going to be a lot that's going to be happening. So can I ask us all this question as we close? Do we really believe what Jesus is saying here? Because he is sharing some incredible, important truths. What you do with what has been entrusted to you is going to have eternal implications. And when you are investing your life, listen, and energy and time for your master, yes, you're going to have rewards for eternity, but I'll tell you the truth on this. You're also going to have joy and fulfillment and real purpose now. Listen, you want to feel frustrated and empty and wondering what life is all about and what it does it have to offer? 
That's what Solomon was doing in the book of Ecclesiastes that we just finished on Wednesday night. He's at the end of his life. He had everything. He had all the popularity. He had all the money. He had all the women. He had all the investments. He had everything. There was nothing more for him to gain. And he said it's all vanity because he was looking at it apart from having that close relationship with the Lord and living for him. And if you want to end up feeling frustrated and empty and not experiencing that abundant life that he has for us, just sit at home, watch a bunch of stupid sitcoms and reality shows all night long, spend all of your time on social media and surfing the Internet, or just live for yourself or live for the world. And if you live for heaven... You're going to find fulfillment on earth. And you're going to experience that abundant life that he has for you. It's not always going to be easy. But that's where you're going to experience true joy and real purpose and closeness with the Lord. But if you live for earth in this world, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out now and you're going to miss out in eternity. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples and us this morning, make your time count. Occupy till I come. And let's live to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Come enter into the joy of your Lord. Because you're going to rule over ten cities and five cities. Let's, from this point on, waste no more time. And don't get sidetracked, especially in the day in which we're living in where this could be the generation. Because we are getting ever so closer to the return of the Lord where he can call us home. And we will be standing before the throne singing that new song. That you redeemed us by your blood out of every tongue and tribe and peoples and nations. And you've made us a kingdom of priests and kings. And we will reign on the earth with you. And at that time, it's going to be so glorious. And there's nothing in this world that can replace that for you to pursue and prioritize. We all have jobs. We all have cares of life. We have things that we enjoy to do. I enjoy doing things. But the priority is you, Lord. And I want to be a good steward of what you have given to me, opportunities to serve the body of Christ and to be a good steward of the gospel that the world desperately, desperately needs. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this parable that is given to us to really, Lord, just touch our hearts with it. Father, I pray that it would cause us in the honesty of our hearts to really look to you. Because, Lord, we all have responsibilities, limitations, all those things that go on in our life. But, Lord, are we taking what has been entrusted to us and desiring to be good stewards of it? Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here that you might be thinking, I don't even know if I'm a servant of the Lord. I haven't been saved. I haven't given my life to Jesus Christ. He came the first time at this time that we're reading about to die for you because the greatest need is to be freed from sin. 
And you can't earn that. You can't work for it. Jesus provided that on the cross. He cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. And now you just come in faith to receive the free gift of salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Written to us in Ephesians chapter 2. You receive it. You can't boast in it. You can't earn it. You ask. You come and surrender. You turn the direction that you're going. That's what the word repent means. And you come and surrender your life to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And ask him into your heart as your Lord and Savior. He is your salvation. There is none other. And you can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me my sins. I come to you as a sinner. I believe you died for me. It is finished. Forgive me. And that you're alive. You rose again after three days and you're knocking on the door of my heart and I ask that you be the Lord of my life, my personal Lord and Savior. Help me to walk with you and to know you, to live for you. I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for hearing my prayer and for dying for me. I thank you for including me in the family of God. In Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, will you come up as one of my elders is up front here as we conclude? Tell them the decision you made. We want to pray for you. We want to make sure you have a Bible. But for all of us that are in this room as we conclude, that in the honesty of your heart to go to him and say, Lord, I hear the words of our Lord and they are true and it's real. You're coming back. You're going to come back for me, maybe before you come back for the church, the rapture of the church, but we are going to stand before you, Lord. I'm going to stand before you and give an account. So help me to be a good steward of what you've given to me. To live for you, not live for this world. To please you with my life. To live the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. To open those doors. To be sensitive to your leading. To be empowered by you, Lord, to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help your people right now. Bless them in every way. I thank you for this time that we've had together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. God is good, isn't he?